Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hey, Peter. Hey there, Adam. Peter, what's the mood down there in Jamaica Plain on this sweltering summer day? Well, there's a certain sort of uh, hot beauty. It is hot, but I've got all the windows open. I've got the fans going. Maybe people can hear the birds in the background. I find it very reassuring. Uh, If you listen closely, you might hear the kids in the school next door splashing about in the pools they brought today to keep cold. So it's summer in the city. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Soraya Wintersmith and I had with Boston City Councilor Lydia Edwards. She's the prime mover behind a big push to change the way Boston creates its city budget. The proposal was just backed by Acting Mayor Kim Janey, which means Boston voters will get to approve or reject it this fall, assuming Attorney General Moore Healy says it's constitutional. Now, a change to the city's budgeting process might sound like super wonky inside baseball. But, Peter Kadzis, you say this is actually even more important than Boston's mayoral race. Why? Because this measure, if approved by the voters in November, would forever, or for a generation, change the balance of power in Boston politics, which at the moment and for many years has been heavily weighted in favor of the mayor. The city council, despite all the fine talk and often hot air that comes out of that chamber, is essentially a watchdog with Boston's strong mayor really having most of the power. That will change under this. The city council becomes much more of a uh, partner in the budgeting process. To put it in sort of simple physical terms, right now all the power for spending money, and we're talking $3 billion, is vested in the mayor. Now it becomes somewhat more diffuse. That is a huge change. It means more voices clamoring money. You are, in addition to being a journalist who covers Boston politics and has for a long time, you're also a Boston resident. As you look at the possibility of this change becoming a a reality, are you optimistic about where it could lead the city? Or do you have concerns? Or maybe is it a bit of both? As a homeowner, I'm guarded. I say I'm guarded because Boston has remarkably strong city finances. Sometimes we can joke about all the ins and outs and mishaps of Boston politics and say, oh my God, Boston, how does this place ever run? But then you look at the dollars and you see the money is very well cared for. I think homeowners, as opposed to renters perhaps, will look at this very, very carefully. The good thing about the current system is if something radically goes wrong in the city of Boston, you know who to blame, and that's the mayor. The schools stink, blame the mayor. The police stink, blame the mayor. Now, on those two, (laughs) the mayor most responsible for however you think it goes, Marty Walsh has uh, left town and is living in Washington, D.C. as Joe Biden's secretary of labor. He won't ever be held account. And just to be clear, for listeners who might not have the pleasure of being homeowners yet, and I only became one a couple years ago myself, the concern for a homeowner would be that this process would ramp up spending in a way that would then increase property tax bills, right? Yeah. Over the long run, 
no, I don't mean tomorrow. I don't mean one year, two years, three years. It also speaks to how sensibly the city could be administered. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Whatever one thinks of the question that voters will get to decide, Lydia Edwards has pulled off a remarkable feat of political legerdemain. She figured out what she wanted. She conceived of the most effective way of doing it, which required a lot of work, a lot of brain power. She went for it, and she appears to be on the verge of getting it. That is no small feat. City councilors talk a lot about doing things. This is one that it looks like she and her fellow councilors will have achieved. So I have to salute her, even though I question, you know, I, I'm not down on this, but I do have questions about it. But there is no way I cannot salute the political skill she showed in pulling this off. And with that, on to the convo Soraya Wintersmith and I had with Boston City Councilor Lydia Edwards, who made the case for the change we're talking about. For people who don't know the full details of what this would do, can you offer a brief layperson's guide to the change that you're proposing? For the average person to know what's going on, I want you to understand how we vote right now on the budget. Right now, and we're in the middle of it, we're negotiating and talking to all the departments, and ultimately the mayor proposes a budget. We then meet with all the departments, go back and forth, ask them about everything from overtime to increased in staffing to everything. And then there's a perfunctory vote the first time that the budget comes up. And traditionally and always, the city council votes it down because it's the first draft. That will happen on June 9th this year. Then the mayor goes back to the, the councilors individually, usually not in a just, just a kind of a horse trading back and forth to see what exactly do you want? What does it take to get your vote? And then some of those things are implemented, some of those things are not implemented, and they propose the second draft of the budget. And usually there, with a simple majority, the city council passes the budget, which is $3 billion. School budget gets a vote, capital budget gets a vote, and the operating budget gets a vote. That's how it works traditionally. And then a movement, a reckoning, a push for us to do things differently happen in two forms. We had a pandemic and George Floyd. And people rightfully said, what the hell are you guys doing as city councilors with our money? Not just with the police, but with our education, with racial justice and everything. And they wanted certain things. And they wanted to push us to cut funding for certain things and push it someplace else and to do all this back and forth, which is great. But again, I just told you, we can vote the budget up or we can vote the budget down. And so eight of us voted for the budget last year in 2020. But I said I would come back with something that actually changes the system to allow for those people who are banging on our doors, sending those emails, demanding to be at the table, to be at the table. And that's what this charter amendment would do. It would allow for the people of Boston to change how we do budgeting in two major ways. One, we'd finally have a back and forth with the mayor. The mayor proposes a budget. We're allowed to move it around for the first time and look at line items. And then we send it back to the mayor and the mayor agrees or disagrees and then sends it back to us. And we say, ah, we don't like what you did. And with two thirds majority, we can reject the mayor's budget, but have a budget. 
And the other major huge change that we would do is it sets up the city to have participatory budgeting, which means one day after we set up this office, that we would have certain funds allocated and the people of Boston would vote directly on where they go. It's been proven to show huge amounts of increased participation and civic engagement when people feel that they are actually directing where their money goes. So it does two huge things. If passed, it's the table we're setting and we want the people of Boston to decide, is this the system you want or not? And you got some pushback from your colleagues on the council, I think the first time that this measure went through. Correct. Three folks that voted against it. And then the last time, I think it passed unanimously? Unanimously. Well, as you mentioned, there was a redraft and we took out some specificities where we were taking specific allocations of funds to participatory budgeting. And that kind of language was just taken out. So it's it's more like the concept as opposed to absolutely, without a doubt, this this amount of money must go here, which I think was a concern to some folks who are more of uh, concerned about the fiscal health of the city. Are the concerns from the opponents, and I don't know if you've been, I'm assuming that you've been doing some backroom hustling to get it unanimously passed. Are the concerns about the fiscal health of Boston? My dear, I do are they not now satisfied. I was gonna say, my dear, I do not backroom hustle. I <laughs> I convince my colleagues uh, and make wonderful floor debates and <laughs> they are they are uh, and, and swoon them into um, agreeing with me. So uh, no, I, I think it's the conversation, it's the explaining, and it's also showing them my own growth. You know, we initially proposed something way more radical, and I think for my colleagues to see how I have changed language, rechanged language, heard from people, and moved, I think that actually earns their respect and earns their trust. Also, the cigars that you guys shared in a smoky back room, right? <laughs> how much of the budget would you envision being allocated in a directly democratic way if this becomes a reality? So if this becomes a reality, we actually set up an office of um, participatory budgeting to to do just that, to do the fiscal analysis for what could be set aside. I wouldn't call it set aside so much as it would go through the general funds and become a line item so that it it becomes part of the regular course of what is budgeted. And I, I agree with many people. They didn't want us to make that calculation and that prescription right now, not knowing the fiscal health of the of the city next year, the year after, and so on and so forth. They wanted an office to put the time in and the effort to come up with the perfect kind of formula so that we have this ready to go and we can move. So that was the point, I think, for a lot of people that they was, it was very calming. But it wouldn't be, and tell me if I'm wrong here, my understanding is that it wouldn't be half of the $3 billion budget, for example, that it would be a smaller portion. No, the maximum we were even looking at was maybe 1%. That was what we had initially. So, so we weren't we were never proposing something so outlandish as half of the budget for us to directly decide, well, let's see what we're going to fund this year. No. I don't know how much of a part of this story these events represent, but my recollection is that you and the other counselors who backed the budget, as you got backlash from your support of the budget, that some of you actually had your homes vandalized. Can you share anything about what it was like to experience that? as a public servant? For me personally, obviously it was, it just, it, it felt unnecessary and it felt mean-spirited. And then honestly, I just didn't understand the point of it. The budget had passed at that point. So I don't know what message that, that was trying to be conveyed coming at night to someone's home. But the message that I choose to listen to 
and that I choose to be inspired by was how many people were so moved to get involved. And so whoever those handful of people were who thought that they were doing something, they didn't do anything. The people who did stand up, who are standing up now, who are writing me early on, who want to to see change in the budget, who are supporting this charter amendment because they believe people should have a choice. That's the message. Those are the people I choose to listen to and be inspired by. Have you gotten any concern from people on the fence who might be thinking that the council powers portion of the charter change would mean we're in a situation like Washington with the sequester where we get down to the deadline and we don't know when the powers that be are going to finish the budget? Are you hearing any of that concern? Because I have, as I'm talking to people who don't support your charter change. Yeah, no, no, no. I've heard concerns, certainly. I mean, if you the, the, the way the charter works is one of us has got to make a move. And if the city council doesn't get the two thirds to override the mayor, the mayor's budget goes through. And if the city council does, then the city council's version of the budget goes through. So it ends the conversation. There's no back and forth. It's, it's no like, oh, we're gonna vote present or we're just not gonna be here. You either shoot your shot or shut up. So that's the point of the budget amendment. It makes us do our jobs publicly so everyone can see us talking about it. So we're not taking a perfunctory, silly little vote like we're gonna do on the 9th, shooting down the budget and make our little speeches. You actually will see us back and forth and saying, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to decrease this, I wanna move this. And that is what I think people pay us six-figure salaries to do, and that's work. I have heard other concerns about, well, you're just gonna do this to raise our taxes. Let me just be very clear for everyone to know, we cannot raise your taxes. We cannot raise your taxes, okay? All right, number one. Number two, then then I've heard, oh, well, this is just an attempt to defund the police. Okay, no, um, (laughs) we can't through this alone simply defund the police. And by the way, if we wanted to, I would have to come out and I gotta get seven votes from my colleagues to do just that publicly. And I don't know that you're gonna see the majority of the city council agree to defund the police. The point is that it's a check on us as well. Look, I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna push for everything I want for District 1, East Boston, Charles Hunt, North End. I want them to be taken care of quite well in this budget. And I would take majority of the money for my district. But here's the thing, my colleagues will not let me, as I will not let them take the majority of the money for their districts. But you will be watching that happen. And again, the mayor sets the budget and we can't turn around and increase, like for example, say, okay, school budget, I'm cutting you, I'm putting all your money into, into housing. That just, it's not allowed. So I just want to be clear with folks, right? There are checks and balances, but the goal is that it's public, that you see us work. And then it would be on the ballot in in November November when people cast their votes for mayor and city council. And I think it makes sense, right? You want a mayor's election, especially because um, the turnout is much higher. And we're changing who's going to be running the city anyway, or maintaining Mayor Janey or whatever, but there's going to be a change. Just change with Marty Walsh, right? Okay. So <laughs> there's there, there's a change coming. So the question is, what else do you want with it? If I could just get you to go back to how you're addressing concerns, one other big one, and I think when we've talked previously, you made an interesting point about how institutions and people assess the fiscal health of the city. One concern the first time that the charter change amendment went through process was that Boston's fiscal health, which has taken a long time to build up so that the city has a triple A bond rating, Boston's fiscal health would be at risk if 
the budget process were changed and changed to the point that regular people are weighing in on how the city spends its money. How are you addressing that concern and how are you encouraging people to think differently about what constitutes a healthy city? We'll start with the second part of what constitutes a healthy city. Traditionally, and actually to, to this day, Research Municipal Bureau and I think many people in the BPDA and some folks in the administration, not this administration, but the prior administration have defined success as how much tax revenue we're getting and how much we're building. And that's it. We're building a lot. We're receiving a lot. We're winning. When we know that that's not true for a good chunk, if not a majority of Bostonians, especially after pandemic. And it's just not the reality that we face. And if we're defining success so narrowly, then that success is defined by those who own a lot, build a lot. And for those of us who are renting, those of us who are uh, struggling, who don't own, uh, we are, we're just not seen. We're not seen. We're not valued. And I don't define success that way how access to wealth, how we grow in a more equitable way, that's a true definition of success. Now, in terms of the fiscal health of the city and allowing people to have a direct influence or impact on that, we had Justin Steele from MIT, professor at MIT, come in and speak specifically to participatory budgeting and the fiscal health at a long hearing. And he made very clear in studying participatory budgeting, I think in over 17 cities, there's been no impact on the bond rating or the fiscal health of those cities around the country. So there's no study that supports their fear mongering is what I'll call it. Number two, we made sure to soften the language so that there was, again, no direct pull from general funds, that instead we created an office that will create a process and they will do the fiscal analysis to make sure that process is aligned with our health as a city and our growth as a city. So I think ultimately there's just some people who have benefited so much from this system. This is the system they know and this is the system that they have had the most influence in. And so they have no intention of removing their claws or their influence from this system. I'm looking at you, the Research Municipal Bureau. They, they don't support a system where they are not recognized as the number one voice on the health and wellness of the city. I obviously do. My last question is, I think, a natural follow-up to what you just said. Another objection that I remember Soraya getting at in the piece she wrote about this for WGBHnews.org is the idea that this is simply part of what the mayor is supposed to do. And Larry Dakar, the former city councilor, former mayoral candidate, was quoted by Soraya basically saying, you know, the mayor gets a lot more votes citywide than even the top vote getting at large city councilor. This is therefore an appropriate responsibility for him or her to have because they've got this broad support from voters. The mayor has more power than the city council, even in this process. This is an acknowledgement of that. The mayor still is the beginning and end of this conversation on the budget. The mayor sets the budget and sets what we can spend, and no one can counter that. The city council in this in this amendment cannot increase it. He says it's 3.5, it's 3.5 billion. Ultimately, I mean, I, again, I, you know, Larry should be honest. He's with the research, what is it, Municipal Bureau or Research Bureau? And he's with that organization. And he supports very much maintaining the status quo and has happily defined success as building more and making sure we have the revenue. He's also against changing the school committee to an elected school committee. So there's a lot of changes that people today are calling for that modernize our city, that include more people, more people of color, more working class people in the conversation. This is part of that movement. This is part of that conversation. 
my last question is pretty nerdy and I don't know that it'll make it in, but I just, Counselor Edwards, indulge me. You are pursuing this charter change by a process that doesn't involve going through the state legislature, um, which as a new Bostonian, I always find it interesting that if it's something as simple as the city of Boston wanting to move the date for its preliminary election, as you guys did, you have to go and ask the legislature, which isn't only made up of people from Boston, but people with different interests in other places. And so you are bypassing that entire process. Can you tell us about that? Sure. And you're right. We had to go to the state house to remove our special election. We did get to move the preliminary date because the state house, thank goodness, had given us permission before. So we were able to do that directly. But you are correct. I mean, the city of Boston, the largest city in, uh, I think, New England, still needs to go to some of the smallest cities in New England and ask for permission to do very basic things. I find that process to be unnerving, uh, maybe because I'm a city councilor, so I'm not going <laughs> to, maybe my bias is showing. But more importantly, on this particular issue of how we allocate the majority of our budget is property taxes, so people paying for their property in Boston, how we allocate our tax dollars, I just didn't see how I could justify bringing this to the state house. I want to bring it to Bostonians, and they may still disagree. I'm okay with that. I just trust Bostonians to know what's best for their money. And I want them to have a voice. But also, did we see how we could put the question to Bostonians? There will be other questions now. Maybe we can get creative with what we do in our own house, in our own city, on our own ballots going forward. Lydia Edwards, thank you for taking the time to talk this through with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I, I, I just, I know I get too wonky sometimes, but I do appreciate this. Peter, any big takeaways after hearing Edwards' argument? A couple of them, in no particular order. One, I think Councilor Redwoods was a bit gratuitous, very polite in the way she characterized Dakara's presumed opposition to this. Where I say gratuitous is she brought in Larry's opposed to um, uh, an elected school committee. That really doesn't have anything to do with this. That's sort of virtue signaling. And I would say that there are men many members of the council who have real reservations about getting rid of an elected school committee. But in politics, everything is fair game. I think that's an indication of how rhetorical this argument could become. She raises a good point about the Municipal Research Bureau. Now, the Municipal Research Bureau is considered by, you know, many in mainstream politics and the establishment as being the final word on fiscal responsibility. I'm not sure how Edwards would describe herself. Certainly as a democratic populist, she has less truck with the Municipal Research Bureau. I would just argue, not against her, I would just point out to listeners that they may tilt pro-business, but they are ultimately in favor of a solid tax base in solid municipal finance. None of us remember the crazy days in the 30s and 40s when James Michael Curley was running the city. It sounds very romantic these days, but city finances were a mess. No one would invest here. I'm not saying that allowing council participation in the budget would bring anywhere near that. I thought Councillor Edwards did an excellent job explaining to people the checks and balances built into her proposal. That certainly made a big impression on me. 
I do think one thing that is going to get lost or that could get lost in this debate is in 21st century America, you can't be opposed to citizen participation. But not every citizen participates. Usually it's those with the loudest voices. One reassuring thing about the current system is that silent majority, it could be argued, have their interests looked after by a strong mayor system. Now, there's an argument against that, that, look, they choose not to speak up, they choose not to vote, the race is going to go to the swift. But there will be a lot of really interesting nuances in the debate that is going to follow, assuming that the AG gives the final green light. But I want to close where I began, and that's giving Councillor Edwards a real salute for pulling off of being in the midst of a, let's say, a peaceful political coup. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to City Councilor Lydia Edwards for joining us, and as always, to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us if you have a minute, and please talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, capital K. A-D-Z-I-S. The Scrum is a production of GBH News. We'll talk to you again soon.